Okay, well, good morning again and welcome. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. And this morning we continue our short series on enduring trials. And today we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. And let's begin by reading it together. Peter writing, he says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though something strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of the Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and uh, and of God rests upon you. And on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if any of you suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of God. And if it were to begin with us first, what will it be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. One of the great theological realities of the Bible is that God through it sets proper expectations for you and I as His followers, as His disciples, as His kids, telling us often what will happen before it actually occurs. So as we begin again to look at trials from a biblical viewpoint, I hope that it will encourage you to know that when you go through trials, there is purpose to it. It is just not simply some random experience that you find yourself in the midst of. And that God is using these trials to draw out from you the character in which He desires to draw from you. They're purposed. They're meaningful. And they align us with Jesus Christ. As we began our first two portions of this series with this quote. The quote is, God tells us to expect trials. It's not if you if you will fall into various trials, but when you fall into various trials. It's not a matter of if, it's a guarantee of when. The Bible says that God has made us these beautiful promises throughout it. And some have questioned how many actual promises of God is made to man through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. The number you may find staggering. It's over 7,000 promises that God has made to us. And we're going to look at every single one today. These promises, of course, give us sure footing in an insecure world. They encourage us when we're discouraged. They strengthen us when we're weak. They allow 
us to remain faithful when everything in us is telling us not to be. It is so important that you and I understand, know, and apply the promises of God. But there are some promises that we appreciate more than others. And this morning we are going to begin with one that I think all of us would rather forget. And that is this. It's found in John 15, verses 18 through 19. Jesus speaking, setting that proper expectation for us. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In 25 years of being a pastor, I've never gone to someone's home and found this scripture on their refrigerator. It's not something we like to consider, but it's certainly a reality in which we can expect. And so let us understand that because God has chosen us, and because God has taken us out of this world and made us His own, let us understand that the world is going to react negatively to that, and that we will be persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ. But later on in John, John writes this, in John 16, 33, Jesus tells us that these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So now I bring your attention back to 1 Peter. And I encourage you, when you have a moment, to read the entire book. Go ahead, we'll wait. Because throughout it all, we find that Peter is addressing those who are going through trials. And here in our text, we see very clearly that some trial is apparently going to come upon them, and they need to prepare for it. They need to prepare for it. Notice what he says here. As he begins in verse 12 with the word beloved, it shows that he is now coming towards the end of his letter and he's concluding his thoughts. It's a concluding statement in the Greek. And as a result, we should take note to what he is trying to say because it often gives us a summary of everything he has just said in the previous three chapters. And he wants them to be prepared for the fiery trial that is about to come upon them. Or as he states which is to try you. What is this trial that they were about to experience? Some have suggested that because Peter used this interesting word that's translated in the English as fiery, it is referring to an occurrence that happened in Rome during the early church. Of course, Caesar Nero was Caesar at that time. And there was a great fire that destroyed a large part of Rome. Caesar himself set the fire to expand the area in which his palace could be uh, given. But yet, he didn't want to suffer the wrath of the people uh, in whom he oversaw. So he blamed Christians for that arsonry. And as a result, they became persecuted. And some believe that this is what Peter is referring to. However, though, as time has gone on, scholars have now shown us that the areas in which Peter wrote to 
were not uh, subjected to this particular persecution. The persecution that Caesar leveled against the early Christians was one of martyrism, whether they were just killed for their faith. They were burned in his courtyards after being doused with oil. Some write that he rode his chariot by the burning light of Christians within his, uh, in his courtyard. But that doesn't seem to fit the letter in which Peter wrote. It's an interesting thought. But looking at the recipients in whom Peter sent this letter to, it, doesn't re- it didn't expand that far out into the Roman Empire. That's what they're saying now by the evidence that they have. What was this trial? Well, it could have been one of many. We don't know exactly which specific one it was, but it was something that was about to occur, that they anticipated, that they saw on the horizon. But it was apparent that the integration of Christians in the early church into the Gentile world was fault with problems from the very beginning. As one wrote, he said, in the first decades of the church's existence, it quickly became clear that the church differed from the surrounding culture and that that culture did not like it. And whether, whether this culture was Jewish or Greek, it didn't matter. They did not like the Christians' presence among them. He went on to write, he said, Christians simply did not fit into the culture of their surrounding. And as a result, the culture used all that was at its means of disposal to force them to return to a cultural conformity. They wanted the Christians to be more like them. Throughout the New Testament alone, we find in the book of Acts that this Persecution came in many different forms. Their displeasure and dis- against Christians were found in commands and threats to cease their activity. Physical punishment, fines and confiscation of goods, imprisonments, mob violence and executions, judicial executions. And along with these came public shaming and insults of each and every Christian in this new culture. One historian, one historian went through and found for us the various means and reasons why they were reacted to in such a way. First, they discovered that both Gentiles and Jews came against these new Christians. And we have to put ourselves in their shoes. Christianity was brand new. It was something that just earlier didn't exist. It was based on the foundations of a teaching of a 33-year-old man from Jerusalem who was a mere carpenter and even rejected by his own people. And now they were asked to live within the convictions of Christianity amongst the Gentile world, which once again was just uh, riddled with opposition. And they saw that these Christians, first and foremost, refused to take part in the normal worship of life, of the household, city, and state. And to their fellow citizens, this implied a lack of loyalty and a rebellious spirit, undermining of the good order. Number two, they found that Christians, they refused to take part in family celebrations, guild feasts, and other social events 
because of the connection of such events to idolatry or immorality. This led to a stigmatizing of the Christians as antisocial, haters of humanity and like. Now remember, this is 2,000 years ago. There was a there was the um, repulsation against Christian critique of their cultures, meaning that when Christians lived a righteous life amongst them, guess what? They didn't like it. And they reacted negatively to it. From the Jewish people, they were reacting negatively to because they followed one in whom the Jewish leadership uh, denounced as not being their Messiah. But however, though, the Roman Grecan world they reacted negatively to Christians because Christians reminded them that their actions were immoral before God and that the images and the gods in whom they worship were mere idols, pagan gods. There were specific uh, Christian practices that were also unacceptable to the Gentiles. In fact, there were rumors that the, amongst the Gentiles that these individuals were gathering together in secret societies. They were treating one another as brothers and sisters across gender and racial lines. That's interesting. That these things were absolved by the understanding that we were all brothers and sisters in Christ. And that was looked to objectionably. There were false rumors, number five, about these new Christians that they encouraged Jews not to circumcise their children. This is the interesting one, that they ate the flesh and drank the blood of babies at their ritual means. You get it? The blood and the bread, the communion was misunderstood. They had orgies behind closed doors, calling them love feasts from the book of 1 Corinthians. And they even caused riots everywhere they went. Number six. And this is the one that I believe got them in serious trouble. It's because they believed that Jesus Christ alone was the Son of God. Refusing to kneel and to worship Caesar as a personally proclaimed Son of God. Worshiping in His temple and acknowledging Him as a God. The Christians refused to do that and as a result they suffered persecution. Studies have been done now over the course of time that show the stages of persecution and how it develops. And these studies indicate that there are five distinct stages to persecution. Physical persecution doesn't just happen overnight. There are steps and stages to that particular stage of persecution. The first stage is very subtle. The group targeted is often uh, characterized and stereotyped by those who choose to persecute it to give the means of separation of those people in the minds of the populace. There's this group, and then they stereotype their character, and they paint them in broad brushstrokes, including lying about their character. And that leads to stage number two. Once they are separated and segregated in the minds of the people, number two, they are then vilified in the minds of the people. These are the people that are causing us all the problems. These are the ones that are, are holding back the prog progress of society and where we want to go. 
These are the individuals who are unvaccinated. Oh, I'm sorry. That these are the individuals that are causing all the grief to our world. They villainize them. They paint them as individuals that are not getting along to go along. And as a result, they are further segregated because they are called such harmful words as individuals who are closed-minded, harmful to human dignity and freedom, intolerant, hateful, racist, bigots, unfair, homophobic, and reactionary. Basically, these people are bad people and our society must deal with them. And the vilification of these people is to move them into conformity. So they better represent the world around them. But if that doesn't work, the third stage is marginalization. These people move into a marginalized state within the world. And again, they try to impede the voice of these people. They try to separate them to the point where they cannot even be heard anymore. Today we called it being canceled. And we push these, this group of people into that position. We marginalize them, saying their opinion doesn't matter. Their viewpoint doesn't matter. We don't need it. It's holding us back from all that we desire to accomplish. They marginalize these people. And that leads to number four, the criminalization of these people. Making their thoughts or practices illegal within the society calling their speech hate speech, mandating them to conform to ideas that they do not hold to, punishing them by possibly having them lose their job if they choose not to conform, marginalizing them and then criminalizing their behavior. This is the trend that is so concerning to me in our country. This is what is happening around us. And we must be aware of it. We must not say to ourselves, it is not occurring. Things are moving so fast. But let us be honest with ourselves that if these are the stages, we are certainly in that fourth stage, ready possibly at some time to move into the fifth, which is physical persecution. I hope that never happens. I hope that never occurs. But let us remember that Jesus said from the very beginning that we would be hated amongst the society in which we occupied because they hated Him. Well, now that you're all uplifted, I'm glad I can encourage you that way. But let's see how Peter would encourage us in the light of all that we discussed. He then goes on to say, if you notice there with me, In verse 12, after acknowledging the fact that this fiery trial is going to come upon us, he then asks us not to consider it a strange event, something that is unfamiliar or surprising or unknown to us. In the early church, these situations would cause the early church to doubt in one of two ways. Number one, they would begin to doubt and think that God has lost control of the world in some way. That their people would be treated, his people would be treated in this way. And secondly, 
they began to doubt because many of them, especially the Jewish uh, individuals who became Christians, lost their prosperity. And going from prosperity to poverty overnight, in many cases, they wondered if, if they in some way had brought this upon themselves. They wondered if this, uh, in a line with the understanding of the Old Covenant, that God says, if, if, you're, if you uh, do what I say, I'll bless you. If you don't do what I say, I'll curse you. Deuteronomy 28 and 29. They still had that in their mindset. And now they find themselves in poverty. Now they wonder, am I still right with God? Am I still okay with God? And Peter says, yes. Don't consider your circumstances, your trial, strange. For he says very clearly that this is all part of what we experience as Christians. In verse 12, he continues, as some strange thing happened to you. That word happened there is very interesting. It means go together. It means go together. He is saying this, don't consider it strange that you find yourself in various trials because various trials go together with the Christian faith in which you belong. They go hand in hand. It's all part of the Christian life experience. It's normal. In fact, one, I believe it was Billy Sunday, the old evangelist, who once said, if you're not being, Christ- if you're not being persecuted, then you're not doing Christianity right. Interesting statement. But it is the same. It is the same Greek word that is used in Romans 8.28 when Paul wrote, and we know that all things work together. So all the events that take place in our lives, all the experiences that we go through throughout our life are all working together for our good. That good defined by Romans 8.28 where Paul says it is into the conformity of the image of Jesus Christ that these things work. But in verse 13, he asks us to react in a way that is contrary to our natural reaction to such suffering and trials. He says, but rejoice. To the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. The early church saw suffering as an outworking, as an evidence of their true faith in Christianity, in Christ. They saw it as a natural occurrence. I should say at least the apostles did initially. The people, it took a little bit more time for them to grow accustomed to that idea. And as we see it, that their suffering, Peter is saying, is an indication that you are truly saved. That you are truly a Christian. Living in contrary to the fallen world that is around you. And he clarifies this in verse 14, if you look there with me. Now he says, if you are reproached, and that means harshly, harshly criticized, For the name of Christ. Notice there. The trials in which he is addressing specifically is direct persecution for our faith in Jesus Christ. There are various different trials that we experience as Christians. Financial trials, health trials, um, long lines at at various places that we go. There are many different trials that we experience and inconveniences that we experience. 
But this, that he's speaking on specifically, is for our faith in Jesus Christ. And if we are harshly criticized for our faith in Jesus Christ, notice what he says there. The reason that we can rejoice is that number one, it shows that we are truly walking with Christ, but number two, that we may know, blessed are you. Notice that. I don't know about you, but going through suffering is not the time that I would often refer to as being blessed, would you? And it certainly seems contradictory to react in a rejoiceful way. He is not suggesting that we minimize the difficulty of the trial in which we are experiencing. He is not minimizing or dismissing the suffering that may occur in the life of the individual. But he's trying to help that individual see that there's something more that's just going on than just their physical suffering. That there's an eternal weight of glory that is being produced within them. Suffering is transformational. Often when we experience suffering as Christians, the very first thing we want to resort to is asking God to remove that suffering from us. And that's understandable. I totally would get that. But the Bible seems to indicate something different. That we should allow that suffering to have its perfect work in us knowing that it's through that suffering that a transformation to glory is taking place. One of the realizations that I have made early on in my Christianity is this. God is much more concerned about your eternal glory than your temporal comfort. And if we will accept that, then we'll understand things from this side of heaven much more readily and much more willingly. But if we believe that Christianity is here only to help us to succeed and to prosper and to be comfortable and to enjoy all that this world has to offer, that expectation is false and it is faulty and it will fail. Because that is not the Christianity of this book. The Christianity of this book says that everything that we are going through right now is temporal and we are looking forward to something so great it can't even be explained in human words. But from this point of heaven, from this side of heaven I should say, it's imperative that you understand that the trial that you're going through, whatever it may be, is bringing you closer to God and conforming you more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, for the purpose of the rewards for all eternity. He says, Blessed are you for this fact that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It is an indication that the Spirit of God is in you, that the new birth has taken place, that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying here. And now you can rejoice and be blessed knowing that for us as Christians, this is the worst it's ever going to be. It's only going to get better. And for us, heaven is something that's so unimaginable, I can't even comprehend it. It is interesting to me how many people I have spoken to over the years who have either going through a period of suffering or have suffered from one element or ailment after another or some physical disability who who have such a dynamic perspective of God because they've embraced him they've held on to him with everything that they have 
for the hope of what is still yet to come. And I believe, guys, that we need to check our mindset and make sure that we are holding on to Him just as tightly. And that anticipation of what is yet going to occur. Notice what he says in verse 14 as he continues, On their part he is blasphemed, those who persecute us. God is blasphemed. But on your part he is glorified. Our suffering is a moment of opportunity to be a dynamic witness for Jesus Christ. Whatever form that suffering takes, that trial that we experience That is an opportunity to show the world our faith in Jesus Christ. And please know this, you never know who is watching. It's easy to talk about God when everything is good. When everything is perfect. It's easy to rejoice at those moments. It's much more difficult to act counter to our natural reaction to suffering and say, even though I'm physically suffering and I'm experiencing difficulty, my heart and my head is still wrapped in the glory of God. And I have hope, even though my situation may seem hopeless. But this opportunity is something that leads to further explanation in Peter's passage. But in verse 15, he gives us a warning. Notice this. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody, one who meddles in other people's matters. Meaning, don't bring this on yourself for being a jerk. First Eric. Okay? It's right after the book of First Opinions. Don't be a jerk. And when you are a jerk and you are uh, reacted to in a negative way, don't think you're being persecuted for Jesus Christ. Let me clarify, you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. I want to make it that simple, if I may. Peter wants to make it clear that we be persecuted for righteousness' sake and not for unrighteousness' sake. If we are being persecuted for living as a hypocrite, if we're being persecuted because we are living in sin, if we are being persecuted for conforming and compromising with this world, then we bring no glory to God for doing so. Let us know that and understand that. Peter wants them to know that. He wants them to understand that. And then he clarifies once again in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. That word ashamed there is so, so important. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better, if it is, the will of, for, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And let me back up for a moment because I missed the fact that even Jesus warned us from the very beginning in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. He said, blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast you out, cast your, I'm sorry, and cast out your name as evil for the son of man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for indeed your reward is great in heaven for 
in like manner their fathers did to the prophets also. Again, this is our Lord telling us this. And this is why James can say when he, when he writes in James 1-2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. It's because it's a natural reaction of the world to act hostile to us. Now, we've enjoyed a special place in America where Christendom and Christianity were prevalent and it was prioritized, and if I may use, even privileged in some ways. But that's dissipating rapidly, isn't it? And now we are being seen as the scourge of society. Aren't you glad that this is an encouraging message and not a a rebuking one? It is an honest message. We need to be prepared. But notice what he says here. Let us not be ashamed. That word ashamed means to, of course, feel shame in the light of the persecution in which we are experiencing. It means to believe that persecution is beneath one's dignity. It means to be disgraced. And that's how the world would view us in that moment. But Peter's writing to us and says, don't see yourself as that. That's not what's happening before your heavenly Father. In the book of Acts, one of the wonderful chapters, chapter 7, Stephen is given an opportunity to, rec- to recount the history of the Jewish people before the Jewish leaders to w- literally indict them of their sin before God for crucifying their Messiah. And of course, later he was marginalized and cr- criminalized and, and uh, murdered, martyrized for his speech. He gave one message and they stoned him afterwards. But from their perspective, they believed that they were bringing him into conformity and into subjection. They believed that they were ridding their city and nation of the problem of Jesus Christ in whom they had rejected. But God had a completely different perspective, didn't he? The Bible tells us that Jesus stood up from the right hand of God waiting for Stephen's arrival. And there was one observing who held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, who was so moved in his heart, so convicted in his heart that God approached him on the road to Damascus and asked him this question, Paul, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you resisting the conviction of your own heart in the identity of who I truly am? Peter, I'm sorry, Stephen could have easily thought that he was a failure and that nothing was occurring and that he missed the opportunity that he had to convince the religious leaders of the rejection of Jesus Christ, leading them to repentance and the return of Jesus Christ in the Jewish mind. And yet, the moment before he died, he saw Christ waiting to welcome him. And Paul the Apostle took the gospel into all of the world and gave us the majority of the New Testament. So was that moment in Stephen's life a failure or a success in the kingdom of God? 
Paul went on to talk about this idea of being ashamed and he openly proclaimed at the beginning of his letter to Rome. He said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and for the Greek. In Philippians 1, he began his letter with these words in Philippians 1.19 through 21. He says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also will I magnify in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul the Apostle had many unique witnessing opportunities throughout the book of Acts. Of course, we know that Paul's whole ministry was prefaced by the idea that he would suffer greatly for the purposes of the gospel and for Jesus Christ. But when we come to that passage where the Philippian jailer is confronted by the reality of Jesus Christ, often I get the impression that when people read that, that the Philippian jailer came to Jesus Christ because of the earthquake that occurred. But if you read it closely, it's not the earthquake. But it was the joy in Paul and his companions' life that sang praises that led to that earthquake. It was the idea that Paul and his companions stood there and didn't leave when the jail was opened up. I don't know about you, but if I'm singing praises in a jail and the door opens up, guess what my first reaction is? See ya. I'm out of here. I'm gone. But Paul stood back. And when the Philippian jailer was about to take his life, Paul, wait, 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 we're, we're still here. Yeah, if I was the Philippian jailer, I'd be like, that guy's crazy. He had an opportunity and he blew it. And not only did he, but his whole family came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't the earthquake. It was the grace in Paul's life that he saw that led him to Jesus Christ. Let us understand that in times of persecution, it is an opportunity for us to be witnesses to the world around us. It's an opportunity for us to show the love of Jesus Christ to those who do not know Him. It's an opportunity to glorify Him in a manner in which is contrary to all that the world knows and admits to. But not only does he say not to be ashamed, he concludes by telling us that in these moments, let us commit ourselves to Christ. Verse 17. For the time has come, Peter writes, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if he begins with us first, what will the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? What does he mean by that? The word judgment there is an interesting word. It is a word that means to be evaluated, to be tried, to be examined, to be determined. And Peter is saying this, that as the church goes through these sufferings, 
It is an indication to the world that God is refining those who are His. Dealing with those elements of their life by chastening rather than harsh judgment. He is beginning to weed out and He is also beginning to refine in their life and bring forth the truth and the character that he so deserve, or desires excuse me, from those individuals. That's how it begins. And because we are found in Christ, that work continues, that sanctification of the Spirit in the life of the individual. And when he says this, he says it begins with us first, that God deals with his children first. But notice that through the uh, book of Hebrews specifically, the word chasten is used. That God chastens us. He wants to correct us because he loves us too much the way he found us. And if it's hard for us to go through that process, how much more difficult will it be for those who do not know the gospel and do not have the Spirit of God within them? Oh, not necessarily here on this earth. They may enjoy prosperity. They may enjoy privilege. They may enjoy all of these different elements that this world has to offer that the Christian is being uh, excluded from. But in the end, in Revelation chapter 20, they'll stand before the great white throne judgment of God. The book shall be open, and their eternal destiny will be a separation from God for all time. God is definitely dealing with His church, the house of God. Over the last three years, we have seen more sin and corruption being exposed within the church than almost in any time of my personal Christian life. Two of the largest churches in our areas, the pastors had to resign due to moral failures. We are seeing God deal with His church. It's because He's getting ready to deal with the whole world. And He must start with us. He then goes on in verse 18 to clarify... Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? What he means by scarcely there, it's an interesting word. He's quoting from the Proverbs. Uh, What he means there is this, that in and of ourselves, there is no ability to save ourselves. None. The only reason that we are saved is because of the grace of Jesus Christ displayed on the cross and validated in the resurrection. That's the only way that we can stand perfected. Meaning that we bring nothing to the table to save ourselves. But in contrast, if we bring nothing and have Christ, those who do not have Christ are in, well, the technical term would be deep doo-doo. They're in trouble. That's what he is saying. Now, all of that leads to what he brings to our attention in verse 19. The world's in trouble. And though we are experiencing suffering, and that suffering should be seen as an opportunity, the world around us is in actually graver danger than we are at that moment. For if we were to die, we would be immediately in the presence of Jesus Christ. As Stephen took the stoning and each one of those blows, Christ waited for him with open arms standing at the right hand of God. But Peter now wants to direct our attention to our persecutor. 
If we are scarcely saved, what about those around us? This opportunity of suffering that you have, are you looking at it as an evangelistic opportunity for the people that are around you? Are you looking for it as an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ simply in the manner in which you conduct yourself during that period of time? And in verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God, notice this, again stating, as he did in the very beginning, that we go through these things as need be, according to the will of God. He says, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. The commentators are consistent in their idea here, in the idea here, that this opportunity gives us an opportunity to win the loss to Jesus Christ. Knowing that our personal temporary fate may be uh, in dire, uh, a dire position at the moment of our suffering, but their eternal fate is so much more important at that moment. And there is no better example of this than Jesus Christ on the cross. How they mocked him and they rejoiced, thinking that it was all over. The disciples scattered everywhere because they thought that this was all coming to an end. And yet at that moment of that significant torture and persecution leading to the death of Jesus Christ, what does he do from the cross? He says, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They thought that they were bringing all of this to the end when in actuality it was the beginning of everything. And as they rejoiced and as they clapped and as they mocked, as he hung there in agony, pain, bleeding, suffering in the manner in which he was, ridiculed and humiliated in the manner in which he was, he forgave them. Then the darkness rolled in. And he was separated from the Father. And he cried out, Why, oh why, God, have you forsaken me? The judgment of sin was placed upon his shoulders. And the sins of the world were being atoned at that moment. And then death occurred, giving up his spirit and dying on behalf of each and every one of us here. They clapped. They cheered, they mocked, and in it all, Jesus Christ was saving you and I. That's the perspective we must adopt concerning our suffering. We must adopt that perspective. That maybe in it, someone would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, That someone that we've been praying for, agonizing over, would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and we would enjoy all eternity with them. That's what Peter was trying to establish in the mind of those in whom we're reading this letter. Take this opportunity to do good. How did they handle this persecution? The historian writes this. Christians responded to this treatment with patient endurance, with explanation, both informal and in court situations. 
They explained their real beliefs and practices. And they went from city to city, expelled from one, they just moved into the next and began to be witnesses all over again. And with continual support from those who were suffering with them. In doing this, they modeled their response on the teachings of Jesus. And they began to live as he lived for the glory of the Father. Notice what Peter writes earlier, and we're going to close with these words. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 70, listen to these words, if you will. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than it is for doing evil. That is the opportunity before us that we allow our suffering to be a witness to those around us as we glorify God in that moment.